This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, is the GOP okay with their presidential frontrunner borrowing a notion and the very words from Hitler? Some answers from 2023, not 1933, keeping them honest. Also tonight, breaking news, a legal setback for his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And Rudy Giuliani, who's getting sued again for repeating the lies he told about two Georgia election workers. And then later, more fallout on the case of the Florida Republican Party chairman, his moral crusading wife, the accusations of rape, a threesome, and hypocrisy. Well, good evening. Pamela Brown here sitting in for Anderson tonight. And we begin with the return of the mostly tepid reaction to outrageous statements the former president makes that have slowly been returning within the Republican Party since the shock of January 6th wore off. Specifically reaction to this from over the weekend about undocumented migrants. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. It's clear to point out specific countries there. Well, this is language poisoning the blood used by Hitler, as I noted earlier. And until recently, it would be shocking from any other candidate of any party or any office. Republican candidate, presidential candidate Chris Christie sharply condemned it, telling CNN's Jake Tapper, quote, he's disgusting. Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, said this today. To give them an ability, the opposition an ability to try to make it about something else with, with some of those comments, I just think it is, it's just a tactical mistake. So as you heard there, Florida's governor not condemning the words, only the tactics of saying them. Republican Senator John Thune weighed in also gently, saying, quote, that's not a view I share. And here's a few more reactions. We're talking about language. I could care less what language people use as long as we get it right. It's campaign bravado. You get up on stage, you're feeding off the audience and and you just let it rip. And that's that's exactly what does and that's that's frankly that's why a lot of people like him i think it's highly unlikely that donald trump's ever read high mind Kampf. well cnn is also learning about the former president's defense along with don jr of a social media influencer who has got a long record of posting deeply racist anti-semitic anti-muslim and homophobic content online k file senior editor andrew kaczynski shares the byline on it he joins us now so andrew what more can you tell us about this influencer that trump is defending yeah, that's right. Both Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. have been defending, praising a former influencer convicted of interfering in the 2016 election with a history of deeply racist and deeply anti-Semitic posts. His name is Douglas Mackey, and he posted under the anonymous Twitter handle Ricky Vaughn. That's where he posted this meme, uh, which prosecutors say was meant to trick people into thinking they could vote for Hillary Clinton by text. They say that at least 5,000 or 4,900 people texted this number. Now, Mackey and, uh, and the Trumps have sort of claimed that this was just a joke, that no reasonable person would believe that. Uh, but prosecutors allege a much more sinister plot to deprive people 
of their right to vote. Mackey was convicted in March. Uh, he, would in, he was sentenced in October, and now he's out as he waits for his appeal. Flash forward to today, and Donald Trump is using this as a, a case to say that Joe Biden's Justice Department uh, is attacking the free speech of his supporters. Take a listen to this. Crooked Joe and his henchmen have tried to shut down free speech with a massive government censorship operation to silence their critics. They're putting Douglas McKay in jail for sharing a joking meme about Hillary Clinton seven years ago. Nobody ever heard of anything like that. So even though he's mentioning Biden pretty specifically there, we should note that this investigation started under Donald Trump's own Department of Justice. This guy wasn't charged until just a week into Joe Biden's administration. And as we said, Mackey was known for his extremely racist and anti-Semitic posts. So it's not just this, right? It, it's, it's, it goes beyond that. Uh, what more have you learned about them? Well, that's right. They sort of sympathetically uh, portrayed this guy as just sort of a Trump supporter, but he was sharing extremely racist, extremely anti-Semitic content regularly on his Twitter feed. Uh, it is so uh, vile that we can't even show much of it on, the, on air. He used uh, the N-word and referred to black people uh, as feral. He shared anti-Semitic propaganda that was reminiscent of Nazi Germany, uh, racist uh, cartoons of, of pretty much every uh, person of color. Uh, there was one post we reviewed where he joked about having a cake made that used a slur for Jewish people and joked about gassing Jews uh, with a comment that was about hailing Hitler. And take a look at this post right here. This is really one of the only ones we can show on air where he says the Jews uh, fear that Donald Trump is Hitler because they know they have done great evil uh, in America and they feel fear that justice will be done. And it's not like this stuff was really hidden. Uh, this was on his feed every time uh, we checked in, in the web archive. And just being a reporter at that time, I remember seeing it from this specific account. So now that you've sort of looked at that, listen to what Don Jr. Uh, said when he had him on his podcast in early December. You had an awesome account. It may be my favorite Twitter account of all time. Now I'll get in trouble for saying that because I'll say, oh, he said something once that you must disavow. Like, it, it was hilarious. Okay? Like, like uh, again, like I said, maybe the best of all time. Yeah, maybe the best of all time. That's what Donald Trump Jr. said uh, about his Twitter account. And we did reach out to uh, Mr. Mackey's attorney before we did this story. He gave us a statement where he said that he regrets the tone and substance of those posts. They do not reflect his current views or the person he has been for the last several years. But Doug is grateful that former President Trump, his son, and thousands across the political spectrums can see through these smears and distractions and recognize that his case is about protecting the First Amendment rights of all Americans. Andrew Kaczynski, great reporting by you. Ali Gordon, MSTEC, appreciate it. Perspective now from CNN senior data reporter Harry Inton, CNN senior political commentator and former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, and CNN's Adi Cornish, host of the Assignment podcast. All right, so let's start with Trump's most recent comments. Congressman, I want to go to you on that. These comments about immigrants from certain countries, quote, poisoning the blood of the country are obviously vile. What do you make of the yeah, lack of strong con condemnation from other prominent Republicans? So two things. Number one, that's not a comment you just come up with unless you know what you're doing. Now, Stephen Miller writes a lot of his stuff, I think. So 
you know, whoever. But let's keep in mind, Donald Trump, this isn't the first time he said poison the blood of America. He said it, what, a month or two ago. He got pushback on it because it's basically Adolf Hitler. And he doubled down and did it again. Frankly, that's what his people love, which is frightening. And the frightening thing to me is not even just that. It's the fact that my former colleagues are now, I mean, if you actually saw them behind closed doors, you'd see them trembling because they now know that they're going to have to answer to everything Donald Trump said. And they're back to their old ways, their old ways of just saying like, oh, that's just him. It's just words, as Lindsey Graham said. It's garbage. These folks, and, and I think anybody interviewing, any congressman or senator has to ask them repeatedly until they answer the question. Do you agree so, or don't you agree? So then do you think they're just being cowardly? Oh, 100%. I mean, they're just being absolute cowards. They wish he wouldn't say it. They, you know, Most of them obviously don't agree with how he says it, but they don't want to tick off the base. Some of them may be up for election. They may have primaries around the corner. And instead of being leaders, Pamela, they're followers. The entire movement is made up of a bunch of followers, and that includes House and Senate members, unfortunately. And it's interesting because you heard Lindsey Graham say those are just words, but those words, Adi, informed a lot of Trump's policies, right? His policies when he was in the White House reflected that kind of rhetoric. And, and you heard um, co the congressman say his supporters love it. And I'm wondering what, what you say to that. Um, do you see any of them choosing another candidate because of this rhetoric? Or does it just simply have the galvanizing effect on them? And for others, they just may not care as much as they care about other issues like cost of living. So no one comment can do anything like that. It's part of overall trend. And overall trend is the former president has been saying this um, clear back to the first debate with Hillary Clinton. He's said it on the trail multiple times. He's used this blood and soil rhetoric multiple times. And regardless of what he means, you do see support from him. There's been research about this on neo-Nazi sites, etc., where they pinpoint this language that's coming from him. And lastly, uh, you heard uh, Adam Kinzinger talking about Stephen Miller, who's the architect of many of Trump's anti-immigration programs. The next round of this that they hope to push in a second term would be mass detention camps for illegal immigrants. They haven't ruled out the child separation policy. They're talking about revoking birthright citizenship specifically from people who are born to undocumented um, mothers. So there is real policy attached to the viciousness of any rhetoric that you're hearing. I think that's really important for everyone to remember, right? This isn't just rhetoric. This is backed up by, as you put, reporting about what would happen if Trump was back. And it feels like Groundhog Day, right, with the outrage cycle about this over and over again. But it, it has meaning, which we've learned after January 6th. Well, I remember when he was running for office before, right? Um, you know, talking about how, how Mexico is sending their worst, yeah. right? And people and explain outrage. it away. You heard that with Lindsey Graham, right? Well, it doesn't matter. Well, I wouldn't say it that way. Well, it's how he said it. We've heard all of that spin before, them not taking things that he says seriously. But at this point, I think most of the world does take the former president seriously. It's one thing to say that back in 2016. It's another after we've already seen him in the White House and, and what he's capable of doing. Harry, I want to bring you in because he made those comments about immigrants, many of whom are Latino. So where does the former president stand with Latino voters? Yeah, it's really interesting, Pam. I mean, if you look at the polling right now and compare Joe Biden versus Donald Trump among Hispanic voters, you know, back in 2020, the final polls had Joe Biden winning Hispanic voters by 26 points. Now, Joe Biden's still winning them today, 
but only by six points. That margin has been shrunk down by 20 percentage points. And I think there's some question, you know, on this issue of immigration and border security. Is this an issue that Joe Biden could potentially use as a wedge issue to win some of those Hispanic voters back? But take a look here. A better job on border security and immigration among Hispanic voters. Trump is actually the one who's favored by 12 points. So I'm not necessarily sure that these recent comments will have too much of an impact on the Hispanic support that has been growing for Donald Trump over the past few years. What do you think about that, Congressman? Do you think that that is a reflection of Harry just said of, of Latino voters being more worried about other issues that they're faced with day to day living in America than than this kind of rhetoric from Trump? What do you think? Yeah, I think, look, I, I don't think Democrats understand how to attract Latino voters. I think they've taken the base for granted. And I mean, look, as Republicans, we were always trying to figure out how do you reach Latino voters. The thing is, though, is there's not just Latino voters. There are people from Mexico. There are people from Cuba. There are people from Venezuela, from Central America. They vote differently in many cases, and they vote on the same issue that any average American votes on. And so I think when it comes to the rhetoric, they're concerned about it, certainly, but they also think of themselves not as Latinos, but as Americans. And therefore, I think it's better if the Democrats, because they have to win this year, because this is there's a lot at stake. If the Democrats understand that you need to speak to them as you'd speak to any blue collar American about the things they care about. And the economy is number one. They have to do a better job of communicating the economy because it's not doing too bad, but everybody feels like it is. Yeah, that, that's reflected in, in many polls. Adi, to, to end with you, you know, we're only a few weeks away from Iowa. Hard to believe we're already there for the Iowa caucuses. And the former president, he continues to lead the Republican field despite that kind of rhetoric. Do you think any of his rivals have a shot at breaking through at this point? Um, we don't know for sure, but we can say that uh, Ron DeSantis has really made uh, a lot of sort of laid a lot of groundwork in Iowa. He has very high hopes there. You see Nikki Haley has made so many gains in New Hampshire, trying to take advantage of momentum that comes from media attention and donor attention. So obviously they still see some kind of path, though that path is not clear, and they see some path through a certain subset of voters that they're hoping to get support from. Yeah, and like you point out, you know, Nikki Haley has seen her her standing doing better in states like New Hampshire and so forth. So we'll have to wait and see. Audie Cornish, Adam Kinzinger, Harry Anton, thank you so much. And we have breaking news on the newest lawsuit Rudy Giuliani is facing for the election lies that he told and why, especially in this case, he really should have known better than to open his mouth. Also tonight, a live report from Israel where the calls from hostage families are getting louder and with it, the pressure on the Israeli government to do more is growing. Grief is a human experience and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually. 
with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Well, two pieces of breaking news tonight. One is a federal appeals court rejecting former chief of staff Mark Meadows' attempt to get his Georgia RICO trial moved to federal court. The other will come as no surprise to anyone who heard Rudy Giuliani continue to lie about election workers Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, even after a jury awarded them awarded them more than $148 million for those very same lies. No surprise, they're suing him again. CNN's Evan Perez is here with more on both stories. Also with us, Jessica Roth, former federal prosecutor and currently professor at New York's Cardoza, Cardoza Law, School of Law. All right, so Evan, specifically, what are Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss asking for in this latest suit? It's exactly Giuliani? what the judge warned Giuliani and his lawyers about. It, they, uh, she, she told the, the, the legal team and, and Giuliani that he was opening himself up to more defamation claims and more lawsuits. And that's exactly what's happened is that uh, these, these two women have now gone to the judge and they want uh, the court to, to enter a, an injunction, essentially, against, uh, against Giuliani, preventing him from making these statements, defaming her, uh, defaming both of them again. Um, and, you know, from, from going on his media, all, you know, as you know, he has a podcast, he has other, other ways that he uh, gets his word out, from not only making those statements, because those are the things he said uh, on the steps of the court, he went out and said that he stood by his, his claims, he said that he had proof, that he was going to show proof at some point, even though, obviously, for two years, he hasn't shown any of that proof. And he said that his claims were supportable. All of those things, they're asking the judge to basically prevent him from being able to say again, from broadcasting it, from publishing those words again. And so now, if this is successful, a judge can enter an order that will now have a greater force or greater teeth, really, against Giuliani making these claims. $148 million is not enough, apparently. I was going to say, right. I mean, how is it that I paid $148 million? Well, he doesn't have it, right? Have so. it. Well, he doesn't have it, exactly. Right. So then so let's go to you, Jessica Roth, former federal prosecutor, to put this in perspective. What can the court do to block Giuliani from repeating his lies after he already owes $148 million from last week's jury verdict? So an injunction, if the court were to grant one here, is a court order that directs a party and not to engage in behavior that the court has ordered the person to refrain from engaging in. And if the court were to go ahead and grant that injunction, as the plaintiffs have requested, then if Giuliani violated the injunction, then he could be subject to additional penalties, fines, and also potentially imprisonment for a contempt of court. Because that's the significance of an injunction issued by a court, is that it has the force of a court order. 
All right, Evan, back to you. You've been a very busy man today because there's another case, this federal appeals court decision rejecting Mark Meadows' attempt to move the Georgia election interference case against him to federal court. Tell us about that. No dice. Uh, this is something that Meadows has been trying to, trying to push for his case to be brought to, to federal court. The play here is to get this case dismissed and so that Meadows doesn't have to face these state charges. But here we have a, a conservative-leaning panel on this uh, 11th Circuit, which is, again, a conservative-leaning uh, uh, court. And William Pryor, who wrote this, this opinion, uh, says that what Meadows was doing was essentially electioneering that does not fall within the, uh, within the four corners of what a chief of staff is supposed to be doing. Meadows is saying everything he was doing after the election w with Donald Trump was essentially part of his duty duties as a federal officer, and therefore he should be immune from these charges, these state charges, in uh, these RICO charges. What, what he wrote, wrote here, he says, whatever the chief of staff's uh, role with respect to state election administration, uh, does not include altering valid election results in, you know, and that is clear as day. So now we expect, obviously, that Mark Meadows is probably going to keep fighting. He's probably going to go to the Supreme Court and try his hand there. So then, Jessica, given that the court determined that Meadows' involvement in the alleged conspiracy was not part of his official duties as chief of staff, raises the question, right, could that impact similar claims of immunity by the former president? Yes. Yeah, so even though the former president is not directly impacted by this decision from the 11th Circuit today, the reasoning in the decision does not bode well for Trump's claims of immunity. Uh, of course, no court has previously held there is such a thing as immunity for a former president from criminal prosecution. The cases are only uh, talking so far uh, from the Supreme Court about immunity from civil lawsuits. Um, but um, if the tr if, if the former president were to prevail on his claim, his argument, which is novel, that there is such a thing as immunity from criminal prosecution, then a court would have to decide what is the extent of it. And in the civil context, courts have held that it extends to the outer perimeter of the president's official duties. So following the reasoning from the 11th Circuit today, if what Meadows was engaged in, which was on behalf, the court said, of the Trump re-election campaign, was not official because it was private and on behalf of the uh, candidate Trump, then similarly, what Trump is alleged to have engaged in, both in the January 6th prosecution in federal court in D.C. and in the Georgia case, very reasonably could be seen as outside the power, uh, not within uh, the perimeter of his official duties. So I think the reasoning does not bode well for Trump's claims of immunity. And, and Pryor, Pryor is very influential, I say, right? Yeah. I mean, he's a very influential uh, judge. So Conservative. It yeah. very, right. It, it is something that I think you're right, does not bode well for the former president at all. Really important perspective and context there. Evan Perez, Jessica Roth, thanks so much. Up next, growing pressure for the Israeli government to get more hostages freed from Gaza after sickening details emerge about the brutality former hostages experienced. Plus, a report from the front lines in Ukraine with more aid at a standstill here in Washington the mood on the battlefield has become increasingly grim. Well, following the death of three Israeli hostages mistakenly killed by the IDF, the White House today warned that the Israeli military may need to adjust its rules of engagement. And this comes with a growing split between the U.S. and Israel over the high number of civilian casualties in Gaza. Defense Secretary Austin in Tel Aviv today said he discussed pathways toward a future for Gaza after Hamas. Meanwhile, there is pressure on Israel to get more hostages out of Gaza. Here's CNN's Jeremy Diamond. The pleas are only growing more desperate. 
I begged the cabinet, and we all warned that the fighting would likely harm the hostages. Unfortunately, I was right. Recently freed hostages and the families of those still captive are ramping up the pressure on the Israeli government to reach a deal for their freedom. After Israeli soldiers mistakenly shot and killed three Israeli hostages in Gaza. Their desperate plea smeared onto a white sheet on the building adjacent to where they were killed. Help! Three hostages read the Hebrew letters stained with red sauce. Former hostages like Doron Katz Asher, who was shot as she was whisked into Gaza, now beginning to share their stories of captivity. The first day was foggy because I lost a lot of blood and they stitched my wounds on a sofa with the girls next to me. Easy to understand that it was without anesthesia. In an interview on Israeli TV, she revealed that she and her two daughters spent part of their captivity not in a tunnel, but hidden in a hospital. We were in a 12-meter room. Ten people, no beds, only a sink. And to go to the toilet, we had to knock on the door. They could open it after five minutes or after an hour and a half. Small girls couldn't hold it. Cramped conditions, but also unending fear. Fear. Fear that because my girls were crying or making a noise, they would get an order from above, be taken from me. Fear. Always fear. For 49 days, Katz Asher shielded her daughters from that fear, until the moment they were handed to the Red Cross on the streets of Gaza, where hundreds of people crowded their vehicle. It was the first time after a month and a half that Roz said, Mom, I'm scared. Multiple former hostages also described the terrors of living under Israeli bombardment in Gaza. There was a bombardment on the adjacent house. It sounded like it was going to hit us. One of the guards was notified that his family member is dead. So you tell yourself, I hope he doesn't turn against us. Nearly every single former hostage spoke of feeling abandoned by their government while in captivity, now channeling that feeling into action. I think that everyone needs to understand that not enough is being done in order to free the hostages from the Gaza Strip. They need to come back now. You have to do everything you can to bring them back now. And tonight, Hamas also appears to be attempting to ratchet up the pressure on the Israeli government, releasing its latest propaganda video, this time featuring three elderly hostages. One of them, Haim Perry, urges the Israeli government to secure their unconditional release, expresses concern about constant bombardment in Gaza. The Israeli military, for its part, says that this is a criminal terror video and says it will do everything to secure those hostages' release. Pam. All right, Jeremy Diamond. Thank you for that. And turning now to Ukraine, the White House is warning that new aid for it will run out at the end of this month as they try to strike a funding deal with Republicans. And as the battle plays out in Washington, it is already having an impact on Ukraine. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh saw for himself on the front lines. Here's his report. But first, a warning for you. Some of the content is graphic. This was where the billions were meant to spell a breakthrough. But where the counteroffensive was supposed to have kicked Russia to the sea this summer, now it is mud, death, deadlock, and the remnants of American help vanishing. It's a notably different mood here, dark, frankly. In the summer, they were buoyed, feeling like they had the world at their back moving forwards. Now it's slow, 
dangerous and a real sense of well despair to be honest. 40 Russian drones swarmed one Ukrainian trench here in a day. Down here in this tiny basement, the rule is do not get seen. The other side are not so lucky. Two Russians spotted moving a load. They guide in a mortar strike. There are just so many Russians now. Usually more meat means more mints, the commander says, but sometimes their machine struggles to handle it, and sometimes they have success. Batteries die fast in the cold, and Russian jamming seems to damage them too. This is Orakhiv, whose streets reek of crushed lives, and how much horror Moscow is willing to bring to be seen to win. In a matter of months since we were here in the summer, how much more damage has been done? If you've stopped thinking about Ukraine, be sure Putin hasn't. At command, they watch a wasteland, tree lines now bare. The dead, the injured. It's unclear if Russia treats them differently. Another Ukrainian drone aims for a foxhole. What they've struggled with are the waves of Russian assaults. Dozens of Russian prisoners, well-trained and equipped, backed up by armor, who they say are given a mix of drugs. They show us this graphic video of a wounded Russian, his legs severed, seemingly high enough to smile through his fatal injuries. Still, they claim they have held hard-won ground, but at a huge cost. As we say in the army, he says, the counter-offensive was smooth on paper, but we forgot about the ditches. Colossal changes are taking place. They started making their own attack drones and outnumber ours, but they use them badly like a kid's toy. They say a drone has hit a trench and blown up a gas heater. The silence, the wait for news, agony. Does it feel like the casualties are getting worse? Every casualty makes a difference, he says. It affects everyone's morale. It's very painful for me. Sergei, aged 48, was one of four Ukrainians to die in that area that day, and about 50 that week. They haven't had to really talk about losing in this war, but this is what it looks like. It's not just drones. This Russian video seems to show a new threat, gas. Caustic, flammable. The Ukrainians have had nine incidents on this front, killing one. Here are two survivors. At first I saw smoke. We ran out from the trench and the gas suddenly caught fire. The trench was in flames. This gas burns, blinds you, you can't breathe, shoots down your throat immediately. We didn't even have a second. You inhale it twice, then you fail to breathe. 
Medical reports confirm their poisoning, and Ukrainian official told CNN a form of CS gas was being used. And there was injuries inside your mouth? Where? On my cheeks, everywhere, inside the mouth. My face is swollen and covered in red marks. It is an ugly, savage world, even on a TV screen. Where there seems little, Moscow won't do, but too much, the West won't. Just endless horror at every turn there, Nick. Is it clear how much Ukraine would be able to turn the situation around if and when the U.S. aid does come? I mean, technically speaking, they haven't really run out of U.S. aid yet. There is still money that's supposed to be flowing. But even there on the front lines, they complain about a lack of equipment. So we've never really had great transparency on exactly what is in whose account. But the morale is already low there because of the stall of U.S. aid. Even just in the last hours, indications on Congress, they're not getting closer to a deal. Uh, and still, they're de dealing with a Russian force that's reinvigorated. There were apparently 13 assaults in the area we were filming in just today, according to some Ukrainian reports, staggering how Moscow seems to have got its momentum back and is pushing again and again. So, yeah, of course, there's going to be a serious impact when that American money finally dries up. Remember, the European Union, too, they're stalling as well on their aid contributions. Uh, but you're already beginning to see, really, the winter, the lack of morale, the fact that the counteroffensive didn't achieve what was thought it potentially might. That's beginning to impact Kiev. And so, yeah, I think as the money runs out, that's going to make a significant change very fast. Pamela? Yeah. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you for the reporting. Up next, more breaking news. A controversial bill just signed into state law in Texas on illegal border crossings. Plus, a closer look at the massive backlog of immigration cases in federal court. And the Florida GOP chairman accused of rape is refusing to step down despite the sex scandal allegations involving him, his wife, and another woman. We'll be back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. More breaking news. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has signed a new bill into law. It makes crossing illegally into Texas from Mexico a state crime. The bill also gives local police the power to arrest migrants and allow state judges to issue orders to remove migrants to Mexico. And this comes with a massive backlog in such cases in federal courts, millions of migrants having to wait years to see a judge. More from CNN's Ed Lavandera. Outside any American immigration court these days, you'll likely find long lines, people gathering in the middle of the night for court appearances that will determine if they stay in the United States or if they'll be deported. They are lining up sometimes at 5 a.m. I've seen them lining up the night before as well. Some of these migrants will end up in Mimi Sankoff's New York City courtroom. Judge Sankoff is the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. She's served as a judge for 17 years and has never seen the system under this intense strain. 
Some days I can see up to a hundred different cases just in a morning. I've been a judge in Los Angeles, Colorado, and in New York City, and I've never seen the numbers that we're seeing right now. Now, for the first time, tracking data shows the immigration court backlog has reached more than 3 million cases. In 2012, there were over 325,000 backlog cases. Across the country, there are just 71 immigration courts and 734 immigration judges that handle this caseload. The states with the largest numbers of pending cases are Florida, Texas, California, and New York. Last December, we met Jason Virguez, his wife Zulema, and their two children as they crossed the Rio Grande into El Paso, Texas. Did you think reaching this point was going to be so emotional? With tears in their eyes, they told me they never thought the journey from Venezuela would be so painful. The family is now in New York, navigating the immigration asylum process. Their journey captures the dilemma of the overwhelmed system. It's been a year since we met you. You just had your first hearing in the court, correct? Están ocupados o cuando te contestan dice que te van a devolver la llamada y bueno. They say it, um, it's been very difficult to find an attorney. They, in fact, after a year, they still haven't been able to get an immigration attorney. The same tracking data shows close to 100% of the migrants who have lawyers show up to the court hearings. The data is less clear for migrants who don't have lawyers. Jason and Zulema attended their first court hearing last week and have another date set for April of next year. The Biden administration has added more than 300 immigration judges to help handle the massive backlog of cases. But Judge Senkoff also says there aren't enough interpreters and law clerks to move cases along. The focus has been on hiring more immigration judges, which makes sense. But you cannot hire your way out of this problem because even um, an immigration judge really can only handle maybe about 500 cases a year. And Ed, you mentioned in your piece there that the average wait time for an asylum hearing is four years. So can the people who are waiting work in the meantime? They can. They needed uh, work authorization to be able to do that. And depending on what country you come from, what your individual circumstances, it could take quite a bit of time to get that. So uh, after these migrants get that, they can start taking on jobs legally here in the U.S. In the meantime, other migrants simply try to find ways to make ends meet, working under the table in, in various locations. And this is happening throughout the country. Immigration judges and reform advocates say that you know one of the things that could speed things up in the immigration court process is if the whole system was moved out from underneath the Department of Justice and the executive branch and into an independent judiciary branch. Um, and they say that would give judges more discretion to move through these cases much, much faster. All right, Ed Lavandera, thank you so much. And up next, the new steps taken against the Florida GOP chairman accused of rape and who is facing other allegations involving his wife and another woman. Also ahead, a volcano eruption in Iceland tonight after weeks of warnings. More incredible pictures just ahead. Well, tonight, new details on that sex scandal involving the Florida GOP chairman, his wife, who is a co-founder of conservative group Moms for Liberty, and another woman. The chairman is refusing to step down as he faces the allegations that has led his own party to take drastic steps against him. CNN's Carlos Suarez has the story. 
Unanimous votes in there. He needs to move on. A sex scandal involving Florida's GOP chairman, Christian Ziegler, leading to calls for his resignation. He needs to resign. He's been accused of raping a woman in October. According to a search warrant affidavit obtained by CNN, Ziegler and his wife had a prior three-way consensual sexual relationship with the woman. He's now stripped of all of his duties and his salary reduced to just $1. We asked him to resign immediately. He has still not resigned, so we reiterated that demand. Ziegler tried to defend himself at Sunday's private meeting of party leaders, but he was heckled by party officials who rejected his apology. He just did a real stupid thing, and he's going to have to suffer the consequences. Party leaders said even if the sexual assault allegations are not true, the details of Ziegler's private life becoming public is too damning. You cannot lead the Republican Party with the charges that are standing in front of him and the th admissions he's made in the affidavits. You cannot morally lead the Republican Party forward. And that's, I think, the end of the day. We wish Christian well in his legal endeavors if he did not do it. Ziegler, who hasn't been criminally charged, says the sex with the accuser was consensual. He also denied reports of seeking a financial buyout in the neighborhood of $2 million in exchange for resigning his post. Writing in a text message to CNN, quote, I have not asked for anything. Again, 100% fabricated lie. I would not be in favor of a payout. The party plans to meet in three weeks to vote to officially remove him. And while Christian's fate with the GOP seems certain, his wife's political future is not. Bridget Ziegler, the co-founder of the conservative group Moms for Liberty, refused to resign from the Sarasota County School Board after fellow board members asked her to do so telling her the sex scandal was a distraction, though she hasn't been accused of any wrongdoing. Voluntarily resign. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has called on Christian Ziegler to step down, but won't go that far with Bridget. I've called on uh, Christian to step down as the RPOF chairman. My understanding is he's the one that, that's under uh, the, the criminal cloud. Uh, clearly, I think Bridget, and this is somebody that I've worked with and, and have really uh, uh, like the work she's done. I mean, you know, she's going to have to to look to see how effective that she's going to be able to be uh, in those circumstances. Removing the Ziegler's is one thing both Democrats and Republicans agree on, even if for different reasons. In order for them to attempt to uh, um, salvage what is left of their party's so-called values, they have to um, give off the impression of accountability. Carlos Juarez joins us now from Orlando. So, Carlos, as you said, Christian Ziegler has not been criminally charged. Do we know the current status of that investigation? Well, right now, Pam, we do not. The Sarasota Police Department really has not said anything about this case officially. We know that uh, police have, uh, we know that the investigation, at least according to the search warrant affidavit, began over two months ago and that police have reviewed text messages and other messages on social media between Christian Ziegler and the accuser. And we also know that police have reviewed surveillance videos showing Christian arriving at the house of the accuser on the day of the alleged sexual assault. Uh, we're also told, at least according to this document, uh, that Christian uh, told police that he recorded this sexual encounter, which again, he says was consensual and that police are still in the process of trying to obtain that piece of video. Pam. All right, Carlos Suarez, thank you so much. Up next, more breaking news, the latest from Iceland, which is living up to its nickname of Land of Fire and Ice with a volcanic eruption tonight. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. 
In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.